Welcome to season two of Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Thane Calder. We started this podcast to talk to smart folks about the ins and outs of what gets them and keeps them motivated. We launched this podcast during the COVID pandemic at the beginning of one of the most massive economic shutdowns since almost ever. The dark side of this period is the unknown, the insecurity it triggers on so many levels from financial to health and just overall well-being. The bright side is, I believe, the insecurity. You know, it's forced us to take stock on life and focus on what really matters. It's in times like these where mojo matters most. We've invited my friend Charles de Brabant, who spent almost 20 years in China and Southeast Asia building the future of luxury retail with big names like L'Oreal, Burberry, Michael Kors, Kate Spade, etc. Now he's back in Montreal as executive director of McGill University's new kick-ass Benson School of Retail Management, which full disclosure, Cloudraker is one of the founding partners, but still, it's kick-ass. And Charles is credible when it comes to university. He heralds from some of the best schools, Bachelor of Economics from McGill, Master's of Literature from Oxford, MBA from Stanford. So if you want to talk about the future of retail, luxury, the influence of China on the economy, if you want the Cartesian view, the intellectual view, if you want to know things about things, you call Charles. But we're not going to talk about that today. No, we're going to talk about Mojo. Charles has had to dig deep for Mojo. He's battled cancer not once, not twice, but three times. And he's learned a lot about overcoming odds and challenges. I think right now, our generation is feeling the angst of what a marathon of challenges and continuous instability means. And that's why we're talking to Charles today. Hey, Charles. Thanks for coming on Mojo Moments. So, you know, what's interesting is in my intro, I, I, I talk about your pedigree and everything you've done. You, know, you have a wicked intellect. You have an incredible career path, a lot of interesting things you've done. You, when I bring up opinions with you, I always pause and make sure it's well thought through because I just don't want to get it wrong because I respect your intellect. But you know what? We're not going to dive into that stuff today because we're, we're going to talk about mojo and it's going to get personal, man. This whole conversation we're going to have is like colored by your battles, your war, as you call it, your warrior, or a cancer warrior. But a lot of interesting insights you've had through that. And, you know, we've had conversations or even around the term courage. And maybe we'll just dive right into that because, you know, you've had to go through three, you know, battles with cancer. and. The other day when we were chatting and I was convincing you to jump on this, we talked about your understanding or your, your renewed understanding of what courage means. And I, I'd like to just get right into that out the gates. Well, thanks for asking the question. But I think one, one of the things that I did in order to better understand what I was going through, and it sort of came intuitively, was to write a journal and to share that journal. So I'd never written a journal before. And then sharing it, to be honest, some people in my immediate surroundings were not particularly keen on me sharing it, thinking that it was very personal. But writing about it made me understand. Sharing it made me see the glass half full uh, instead of glass half empty all the time because it was really not the most pleasant of circumstances. And part of the feedback I got through sharing this was, oh, you're so courageous. And, you know, a lot of things that people told me resonated with me, but that always irked me. And very recently, during the COVID period, I wrote an article on leadership in the COVID era. And one dimension I talked about was courage and empathy. And as I was writing it, it sort of dawned on me that 
I realized that I wasn't necessarily courageous, but I was certainly less afraid. And that I feel a lot more comfortable with. And maybe somebody might say that the definition of courage is to be less afraid. But that to me is something that after you know, three, four years of listening to people tell me that resonates a lot better for me. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it's true. When you first hear the word courage, you hear a warrior with, you know, the armor on and going out to the battle. And we started saying, you know, you're a cancer warrior. But when you say, you know, obviously, if you probably look it up in the dictionary or Google it, courageous is less afraid. And I think we've lost that idea of it, that side of it. Yeah, I think it's sort of more the general patent going out there and, you know, Ass kicking. Uh, I, you know, going out there, a hundred thousand men, and you know we 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 win the day, but eighty thousand men die in the process. That's courage, um, and leading the way. So, yeah, I, I don't see myself being that at all. I just, and I think one of the things with when you go through something like I've been through is you just cope, and and one doesn't quite know how you're going to cope. So I have a lot of difficulty sort of saying. You know, yes, maybe I was courageous, but it was more of coping than anything else. It was my way of coping with it. And you mentioned, you know, uh, in your journals, I, and I was part of the lucky circle on receiving your journal. And it was interesting, your mix of just true, genuine, like sharing what's going on in your mind, sharing some tidbits of your life. But do you feel the fact that you were sharing it gave you the half glass full versus empty? Did it make you have to find that side because you were sharing it? Partly because, you know, if I tell you that life sucks once, you might read it. If I tell you life sucks twice, you might read it. But, you know, the third time you're going to be like, okay, I love Charles, but I, I like him. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, life is difficult enough. I don't need to have somebody tell me again. So part of it was that. But I think one of the things that's so bizarre about those periods, you know, and it goes back to what is happiness, is that, you know, you, you live these incredibly special moments of where the glass is more than half full. When I was finishing 10 weeks of chemo hell in, in Kuala Lumpur during my second bout of cancer. And it was going to end on the 31st of December. So it was close to Christmas. We celebrated Christmas with the family being there, our son flying in from Portland, Oregon. You know, you celebrate Christmas for all the right reasons. You don't celebrate Christmas for all the wrong reasons. And even though I was feeling, you know, I'd lost probably 10 kilos, I was feeling awful. I was extremely thankful for that moment with, with my family. Because it, yeah, it, it brought everything back to what was essential and what was important in life. And that you don't necessarily get in normal life. So that's where the glass at that point becomes even more half full, even though you are feeling. Well, I, can, I remember in one of the journals I got, I think it was, it was in the winter. And you, I think you talked about it was a winter day and you were describing just the crispy coldness. And I think you went for a walk or maybe in a cross-country ski, despite your I mean, you're, you're fragile. I mean, you were in treatment and, and just, you could picture the true, honest sense of enthusiasm and appreciation, genuine gratefulness of what was going on in that moment. You know, I'm, I'm a downhill skier and cross-country skiing has never been my thing. But what I have learned is this notion of agility and change and ability to, 
to do what you can. So I was a little bit afraid of going downhill skiing at that point. This was back in, I think, early 2019. And I asked my nurse, I said, could I go do cross-country skiing? And she said, yeah, why not? You know, and you get a high that you don't get any, you don't get in normal life. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's sort of even better than the glass half full. It's sort of like those, you know, you're like, wow, I can do this. You know, whereas most other times it would be just, you know, okay, I haven't cross country skied before, but I wouldn't get the same excitement or the thrill of just feeling like oh, I just did this. And so you're saying you're a big downhill skier. You've mentioned your dad was some insanely courageous downhill skier. At one point, you said even when he was in his 80s, he was hitting some of the most gnarly runs of, of Stowe. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. I mean, he always, he's 81 right now and he still does it. So uh, yeah. up until two, three years ago, he, he'd easily do 10 runs in a row and the toughest runs if, if they were doable. So let's talk about dad and mojo. Like, is that good mojo or is that stressful mojo? Like, I got to live up to that. I have a extraordinary father i would say and i don't say that just in the positive sense of extraordinary i think there's <laughs> there's there's nothing on the bell curve that is in the middle as far as my father's concerned you know he's a crazy entrepreneur that started as a lawyer did well as a lawyer and then did well as a real estate developer but lost it all and then ended up writing a book on memory doing film biographies starting an internet company in the in the recruitment world, um, speaks 10 languages, at one point at a library of about 5,000 books. So yeah, nothing's been ordinary with, uh, with him. I think a lot of people are intimidated by him. And over time, I think we've built, I have a pretty easy relationship with him. I mean, partly because I've done some of the things that he would want a son to do or a daughter to do and things that he wasn't able, even able to do. I mean, I think he would have loved to have gone to Cambridge or Oxford, which was, you know, I got the opportunity to go to Oxford. So those kind of things. So I think even though he intimidates me in certain ways, because he still memorizes poetry every day. Uh, <laughs> so he spill, spurts out all these verses and you're like, you know, in, in French, English, Italian, German, and you're sort of sitting there, oh my God, okay. And I still haven't had my morning coffee. It's just a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm glad there's so many because it's like when I meet with you, I'm like, I got I to be a little more on top of my game. So this is good. <laughs> so you have someone in your life that does that to you. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So I want to dip back into, so you wrote a, a great article, The 12 Life Lessons of a Cancer Warrior. Yeah, quick question. Was that the title that inspired by, you know, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of for life or no it ended up i think originally i ended up at 11 or 10 and then somewhere along the line i ended up with a 12 so it there was no i mean obviously when i got to 12 you sort of feel like that's a good number <laughs> and actually when i wrote the first one which was back in 2017 and then i came and revisited it again i was wondering whether i would add lessons and actually i didn't add any lessons i just lived those lessons in a different way yeah, that's just interesting because in the article you talk about how you felt it then and how you felt it now type of thing and what's evolved. Or So let me ask you this then. So in this COVID period and in all this world we're living in, you know, out of the 12, we won't go through them all right now, but what lesson or lessons do you feel right now are probably the most 
pertinent or applicable? Probably the first lesson. I mean, I think the first lesson that I put is in those 12 lessons is find your own coping mechanisms. I think this is just as true in this period as it is when you're battling cancer is, you know, everybody seems to have a recipe that they want to sell you. And strangely, sometimes want to impose on you. Mm-hmm. I'm right now in the US and in Vermont, and you know, Americans are always, glass has to be not half full, it has to be overflowingly full, you know, so you've got to look at this in the most positive way possible, you know, and battle cancer. And if you don't have that positivity, it's not going to work for you. I think really, it's finding what allows you to cope and leading towards two things that I wrote in a leadership article, which is mental and physical well-being, find some kind of mental well-being and some kind of physical well-being. And I think we're all different as far as that's concerned. And I guess that's why there's been such a run on things like I heard a radio guy the other day say, remember the era of COVID when we were baking bread? (laughs) You know, there's that early stage where everyone's running out like baking bread or, but everyone's finding their things. I guess people are doing that coping in their own ways. Hey, I think the other, the other thing that I would say is, and and this also goes back to this leadership article, but is that, you know, I, I went back from changing it from a survivor to a warrior, my title. I realized that, you know, you can't say after having cancer three times in five years that you are a survivor. Well, I'm a, at least a temporary survivor, but I'm not a long-term survivor. Uh, maybe in five years, if I'm in remission, I could say then I'm a survivor. Right now, I'm a warrior. And I think there's this notion of resilience and, and this notion that, as I think Governor Cuomo quoting Churchill said, this is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning is the way that he says it. And I, and I think that that's important because I think a lot of people felt through COVID, okay, I've gotten through the first month. Now let's get back to normal. I've gotten through the second month. You know, Now we're in fall and everything should be back to normal. And I think one of the things you learn when you go through what I went through is especially the last time around, because my first time was 10 weeks of hell. The second time around was one full year of treatment and more and then recovery. So you learn that it's just not going to get better tomorrow. It's going to take some time. And, and how do you cope with that over time? And, and this is where I think the warrior analogy is probably better. And we have the, like these mixed signals. We have like, oh, we'll have a vaccine in October. And then you have the World Health Organization saying uh, maybe next summer. Uh, you know, all these m- different notions of managing expectations of time. And, you know, a dear friend of mine who unfortunately didn't, survive his battle with cancer often told me, you know, I got to just live now. I know it's a bit the cliche, you know, living in the present, but he really lived by that mantra of, I don't know, like you can't really manage the future, he would say. And, you know, I don't know what your thoughts on that. Is that important to Mojo? I think I think I have a little bit of contradictory thought with that. I think that's what's so weird one year after you know, having a stem cell transplant, which is not a neutral thing to have, in, in, even in cancer treatments, right? You're putting quarantine in a quarantine environment and, and stuff like that. Um, and your, your body's pretty much depleted in terms of energy close to zero in order to rebuild you again, is how quickly normal life comes back. So to a certain extent, I'm a lot more agile, a lot more flexible and enjoying things and less regimented than I would have been. And I think we were discussing that a little bit before, you know, if I can't 
run or play tennis, I'll walk or I'll bike or I'll, I'll cross country ski instead of downhill skiing. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm a lot more open to that. And I, I think I, I don't know if I live for the moment, but one thing I have done, and that came after the, the, the second bout of cancer was fundamentally changed my life. Right. I mean, coming after 35 years of being abroad, coming back home to Montreal was way better than I expected. I, I sort of, you know, being in Asia for 15 years, especially China, was like being a coke addict. Um, so the first few years of being a coke addict are, are probably pretty great. But then it becomes, you know, meeting that coolest person, going to the coolest party for the for the. 900th time sort of doesn't have the same impact anymore yeah and so it, it's made me you know figure out what's important and you know i'm a lot happier walking to work taking my bike to work cooking my own meals when i come home and i have no inkling to go back to shanghai and live the high life even if you told me i could go and live it back in the same way that i did when when it was the best of times Actually, so, so while we're on China, just for a second, we are going to dive into China for a second. Last year, uh, I went to Shanghai, actually on a trip, a discovery trip with my business partner to dive in to the secrets of China and retail. And, you know, everyone was saying, man, they're, they're, they're way ahead of us. And, and, and to be honest, over there, I, I, I confirm light years ahead of us in so many ways of what, what we call the Western world. The one thing, by the way, that's equal to us, at least that I discovered in Shanghai, they have shitty sidewalks also. Uh, <laughs> they're as bad, at least as Montreal. And I, I actually tripped and broke my right foot. On that front, they're, they're nowhere further ahead. But anyway, I digress. Here's my question. I was impressed, truly. There's something I felt missing in Shanghai. And, you know, I wasn't there that long. So maybe I just missed it. But I, I felt there, and I can't talk about China, but at least Shanghai, I didn't feel there was mojo. Did I miss something? Like, I just felt... You know, there's a book written by, actually, by a Montrealer, and I forget his name, on Shanghai of the 1920s, 1930s. And he basically shortens it to about five years. Those were the five great years that made Shanghai so special in the 1930s. And... I think we live that period between 2004 and 2014 when we were there. I think when Xi Jinping came into power, it became a very different time. I'm not saying that Xi Jinping are good or bad because I probably think he's probably right for the moment for China right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I remember whether you were 15 or 80, when you were coming to Shanghai, people partied till like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, you're sort of like, well, what's in the water that makes people, you know, just want to go out and think that everything is possible? And, and, and I think that, that period had the mojo, as you rightly point out. And by 2014, it was already waning. And I think now goes back a little bit to this cocaine analogy. You know, when you're on the treadmill and all you're doing is putting it higher and higher and faster and faster. And you, you know, you're on your, your 35th marathon, unless you love to do that all the time, it becomes tiring. And I think for the Chinese, it's, it's tough. I mean, even at that point, they were saying that they were the most stressed managers in the world. And the other thing you've got to ask yourself is, as we move forward, now that they can buy everything that they want to buy, at least a certain, let's say, upper class, but 
that ends up being quite a significant number of people. You know, what do you aspire towards? And this is where I start to think that Canada, New Zealand, Scandinavian countries are, are more what they're going to aspire towards. And what we can aspire is being true sort of luxury in life. And that you can't have in a city of 25, 30 million people in, in, in one of the most polluted countries in the world. You know, you try and get out of Shanghai and for five hours you drive through industrial zones, right? You know, you don't find countryside. I mean, we did, but you have to really know where you're looking to find it, right? Just driving to the airport, there was like, as far as I could see from the highway, cranes building apartment buildings. Like it felt like a Mississauga times a hundred. It's so yeah, the notion of getting out of the city. I, you were mentioning um, marathons earlier. When I broke my foot, the doctor who treated me was one of the, the volunteer doctor for the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me one of the things that's crazy about Shanghai Marathon is, you know, you're saying people partying from ages of 10 to 90. He goes, for the marathon, everyone of all ages just show up. They sign up, not for the half, not for the 10K, for the full marathon. And they're 80 years old, 70 years old, done no training. And there they go. They just show up and they're doing a marathon because when you move to Shanghai, you can do anything in life. And he goes, so I end up dealing with a lot of heart attacks. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I didn't know because I did, I did the half marathon back in 2009, I think. And no, people, people weren't just going out and doing it. I don't think, I don't remember that being the case, but. Well, maybe this is the post 2014. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, maybe you're right. Hey, so let's take us, I want to tuck into Benstoon School of Retail Management, your executive director there. And we're living in the middle of a big impact for any school. Universities in particular are all virtual, right? Or at least for now. And not only that, you're part of a school that is focused on probably the industry is the hardest hit or close to during the COVID era. Uh, retail, super in flux. So how do you manage this period? And how do you motivate students now about their career choice in retail? I mean, one of, one of the things is pre-COVID, retail was in a huge transformation. I still remember coming back in 2017 to North America and you know, you're coming from the land of consumption and retail and malls and, and when living in Malaysia or China or whatever, you know, and shopping is the preferred hobby for both men and women in that part of the world. And I come back and everybody's like, retail is dead, long live Amazon. So I dig into the numbers and sort of see that retail is actually not dead. If you take it as an omni-channel thing, it's growing. It's growing at twice the pace of the economy everywhere in the world, by the way, be pre-COVID. But that it's in a profound transformation. And one of the things I was looking at is in fast companies, top 50 most innovative companies in the world, you see that in the last three or four years, retail and retail-related companies, so I would put a Shopify in there, I'd put a Walmart in there, I'd put a Patagonia, I'd put a, an Amazon, an Alibaba, represented you know, 25, 30% of the top 20 companies. So you're like, well, if you'd done that 10 years ago, retail probably would have had zero. So suddenly retail has become one of the most innovative industries, probably one of the top three most innovative industries. If you take it from a totally macro perspective, you know, mm -hmm. you include the Alibaba's, the, the 10 cents of the world or the, the Amazon's. Now that was pre-COVID and it was going into two different extremes. One, an efficiency convenience extreme with the Alibaba's, the Amazon's, the Walmart's of the world, and then a, an experience extreme 
where it was maybe the Lululemons, the Starbucks, the Apples, some D2C players like Warby Parker, and COVID hits. And actually, COVID is surprising in terms of what it's doing to retail. It's annihilating certain players, but other players are coming out of this totally strengthened or potentially strengthened, right? You know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos will be the first $200 billion billionaire, right? Yeah. So you've got Amazon on the one end, but, you know, I was discussing with somebody this morning, Claude Silwaf, ex-head of Ivanoi Cambridge Retail, and we we're talking about Lululemon or experience retail. They're thriving. They're perfectly positioned to do well when it continues. And they, they made a very bold move by buying Mirror, which I think was a great move towards an omni-channel, digital, whatever wave. So... I think there's some super, super exciting things happening in retail. And let's not forget Shopify you know, or Lightspeed, both Canadian superstars in the tech world, right? I mean, yeah. uh, Shopify has reached over $100 billion in valuation and, and Lightspeed, you know, from a $1 billion IPO, I don't think many companies that IPO'd at $1 billion in the last 36 months have done as well as Lightspeed's done. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities. So it's, it's really going back to this notion of looking at the glass half full. There's a lot of things that you can look at as half empty. Well, there really is a lot of exciting things in half full and not just the Amazon or Walmart. You know, I was looking at BRP results about the recreational products. Yeah. You know, the whole stay vacation trend is, is, is made. Yeah, people have thrown their money into that. Yeah, or renovation, right? I mean, I don't know if you've looked at the results of Lowell's or, or Home Depot, but they are like plus 20% in sales. So, I mean, in, in a way, the school's positioning actually of being more of a fully integrated program that includes all the dimensions from supply chain to design to a full thought. This is like the perfect time to be in retail if you want to learn about playing in the future. I think so. And I think there's some pretty exciting opportunities out there. And, you know, before retail didn't necessarily attract high paying and talented, let's say, university graduates or postgraduates. And, and now more and more, they need them. And then I also, you know, retail is life. And I think governments are suddenly figuring it out. You know, it's a little bit like Americans are finally figuring out that you need government agencies. You know, you can't just, you need them to survive, right? And I say now governments are realizing that actually, oh, you get rid of retail and then your whole social fabric disappears. You know, there's this whole human dimension that I find is, is magical. And I think that'll come back. You know, your local retail is critical. And in there, I would put FMB, I would put anything that's consumer facing and touching people's hearts. I mean, you know, this is uncertain times. So if you can go to your local store that you love, your local bakery, your local pub or whatever it is, and feel like somebody recognizes you and values you and touches your heart, it's important these days. I went to a restaurant yesterday for the first time since February, like in a restaurant. It was quite amazing. I didn't know how to eat in a restaurant anymore. I spilled a whole bunch of food on my shirt, but that, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> I actually wore a dress shirt and I've been wearing black t-shirts. So maybe I've been spilling the whole time, but I haven't noticed when I'm at home. But yesterday I was like, holy cow, I'm a slob. But anyway, that's, that's a whole other issue. So this is the point in the podcast where we um, jump into what's called the rabbit hole. Okay. It used to be our rapid fire, but then we realized these rapid fire questions led to sometimes lengthy conversations. So now we just call it the rabbit holes. We got five here. Maybe there'll be more, maybe be less, but there's five questions that we bookend our conversation with. So which is the first one? Back to your life lessons, you had 12. What if you were to add a 13th? Do you know what that would be? 
I really don't. I really don't know. I had 11 and I added a 12th, which was really to, to at the time. <laughs> so I, I had a moment where I added a 12th, which was really, you know, and, and very appropriate for this COVID moment when people are at home is hopefully make choices that'll make you live the life you want to live. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that by coming back to Montreal in, in very strange ways. And, and Maybe this is a 13th lesson, but it has less to do with cancer, but, you know, luck by design. I ended up, you know, doing a draft of a letter to Henry Mintzberg at McGill in October of 2016, then went through this massive treatment and then finally sent it to him in January or February of 2017. And I didn't know him, but he had influenced my life quite significantly as a professor and as a management guru. And he responded three weeks later. And we had a Skype conversation. He said, if you come to Montreal, come and see me. And I went to see him and ended up seeing the dean afterwards. And she said, we have nothing for you. And six weeks later, she said, well, we're getting a gift of $25 million from Aldo. Ben said to his family, would you like to, uh, or foundation, would you like to come and co-create and co-develop the school? And yeah. So we got a 13th here. <laughs> Luck by design. We did it. We did it. We did it. And lucky 13, it works kind of. You're like, oh man, now I got to write the 13th. <laughs> so actually my next question then, so while we're riffing on this is, I have this obsession with the number 11. So when I looked at your 12 list, I went straight to number 11, which is my favorite uh, number. And I really like it, which is have a doable dream and live it. So what's your new doable dream? So that 11th lesson when I did it was to go back and visit all the places that were dear to me to meet the people that were dear to me. Because as people say at the end of their lives, the relationships are whether they're the most important, but my relationships are linked to the fact that I've moved around quite a bit. And it was then what I also added was to live the rituals that you that are linked to those places and those people. And I missed out on a couple of places that I was hoping to go back to last year. But my doctor basically said it wasn't the right time, which was London and Oxford, which were very important to me, and Tuscany, which was a place we used to go to on vacation. And then, and so I would say I would love to do that because I haven't done that. And now it seems like a dream because it seems harder to do at least. Well, now. it seems a little, yeah, it seems a little bit harder to do right now, but yeah. I think that that would be my answer. That one really spoke to me. So, you know, and I didn't give you this backstory, but other people have heard this on previous podcasts. But, you know, the, the birth of this podcast with my mates, Cloudraker, was in 2019 after 19 years of founding Cloudraker and running things and having mainly ups and a few downs. And But in 2019, I was just kind of in a uh, trying to figure out what's you know, what's next? And, and it was sort of like, so I started talking to people that inspire me and are doing different things. And, and I realized, you know, the importance of mojo and regaining that mojo for yourself and for your family and for your friends and for your colleagues. And, you know, that was the birth of doing this mojo podcast was like, I got a lot of mojo talking to different people. So I was like, this is a great excuse to have these conversations with interesting people. But when I read your have a doable dream and live it, it was like, I think that's what's important is like you hit little plateaus and you got to reimagine what's your next dream and start going towards that. So it really spoke to me. I think for Mojo that having that, that dream out there and the doable, and I'm glad you added the doable because you can have silly dreams. Like I, 
I would love to be a great singer or, or musician. It's just not a doable dream. And it's okay. You know, I'll make, I'll cultivate friends that are musicians. But, but I think, I mean, I think part of it is also just the fact that, you know, when you're going through something like what I went through, you need some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And actually in these COVID period is, you know, once we get out of this, I think we all sort of need something or moments throughout this whole you know, we seem to have gone into a COVID rabbit hole and, and we all thought it was going to end a lot quicker than it did. And, and now we don't know when it's going to end. So I, I think, you know, having these moments of doable things, doable dreams, you know, and maybe one of our dreams right now is where we're, you know, this house that I'm sitting in, you know, trying to structure it in, into, I've never had a country house. I didn't really think about it as a doable dream. It sort of came by accident. So I don't think I did it purposely in the thinking about it. But making this a reality and, and making this part of our lives, and I think is, yeah, that's another doable dream uh, for us, at least. Question. In a lot of your journal, you talk about, because we, we're Canadian, we're from Montreal. We got to talk about hockey for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, I know in, in your journals, you would, you'd actually get a lot of mojo. Like you would talk about the Canadians having a good game. And it, do the Habs have mojo? Like, sorry, we got to tuck into this. Do they have mojo? Did you follow this recent little playoff run? And I think that that team has, in my view, a lot of mojo. Uh, I don't understand Marc Bergevin's decisions as a managing director. I think he is bipolar because he seems to, you know, he seems to have been able to get Nick Suzuki or Credit or Gallagher or Tatar or Shea Weber. But at the same time, trading deadline, he trades everybody away that can give the team some kind of solidity and gets nobody in return, which is like, well, what are you doing? So I give that team a lot of credit for. They didn't have a lot of padding, extra padding to do well. And to be honest, I thought they didn't deserve to lose that last game. I mean, if they had lost to the Flyers in the seventh game, fine, but they didn't deserve to lose the sixth game. So we know you are a loyal, true fan. So hopefully if someone from the Canadians listen to this, send Charles some free tickets <laughs> next when we open up the Bell Center again. Just I, let me ask you that question because did you feel like they had mojo? It's really interesting because I actually, I have two answers there. One is I found the format in COVID, you know, the lack of fans, I did find it a lot flatter. Like not having fans really changed the mojo of the game. But when I watched the team, I like you, I was like, they have it. There's there's the elements of that, the unknown part of a team, which makes a team win. There wasn't an individual. There is a collectivity there that I think just the little tweaks here and there, I think they can do Yeah, it. but this is where I hold Marc Bergevin totally responsible because I think that he, when it seems to get to that moment where you get to the next point, he peels something away that just puts it back a little bit. And look, I, and I'm no, like I watch my Auntie Sham, uh, you know, after the games and all that stuff. I, so I'm no expert on this stuff, but I'd say I have a feeling he's showing a little more humility right now. And I don't know, I'm going to give him the credit, uh, the benefit of the doubt right now that it's going to fall into place. Let's hope. I, I mean, because he's got these yeah. young players that are amazing, right? So I feel there's a bit more humility on his side. Maybe it's because his hair was longer. He didn't look as slick. I don't know. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Last question. And this is the one I've been asking everyone because my son is now 16 years old. So it's my way of cheating, getting advice from smart people. What would be the advice you give your 16-year-old self? 
I had to have a difficult conversation with my daughter when I was going through cancer in 2016. And she would have been 16, I guess. So the moment demanded that because she was in her last year of high school, captain of the soccer team, doing the IB program and seeing her dad like she'd never seen me before because I'd probably never missed a day of work till that period. And I was always fit. And, you know, she would see me in terrible circumstances and live with me during at least one of the terms under those circumstances. So one thing I said is that this is the most important year of your life being the last year of high school. So I don't know if that fits in 16, 17, but you know, you want to make sure that you live that year the way that you want to live it and that you can be proud of because it can open so many doors for you and it can close so many doors for you. And it's difficult to reopen some of them if you, if you mess up. And I can understand that what's happening to me may make you mess up. But if you want to make me proud, live it the way that you would want to live it. I want you to, you know, continue to be the captain of your soccer team. I want you to do as well as you can in your IB. I want you to enjoy your boyfriend. And and I think for me, with her, you know, she's going to now graduate summa cum laude and whatever from business school and now is the captain of a rugby team that she brought to nationals of the U.S. and stuff like that. And there's, you know, there's this opportunity to go work for the Golden Sachs of the Worlds or whatever. And I still think at that point, the person that I most admired in her life was her soccer coach. And she was an English teacher. She just seemed so happy. And I was like, you know, I don't care whether you become, actually, I probably would be a lot happier if you did that than if you became a Goldman Sachs banker. And, and pursuing what's, what makes you happy. It's not going to be happy every day, obviously, but I think pursuing what makes you happy. You know, both my kids have been involved in sports. And if they go into sports management and or whatever it is, or some sports field. And I think this COVID crisis has brought back who's important, right? I mean, I can definitely tell you that, you know, three or four nurses were, you know, when everybody talks about nurses being so important for COVID patients, I can attest to that as a cancer patient. Those are the people that were the most important people for me. And I think something that I like about Montreal, at least in the friends that I have, and even in the friends that I had in Paris, I had friends that made it, didn't make it, didn't make it in in in, in the financial in the terms yeah. that we yeah. would think, and I kind of love you know I've got one person in mind, and he probably is the least successful from a financial standpoint of all the friends that I have, but he's the guy that I most admire. You were saying earlier, you know, when we we're talking about your dad, you know, one of the things a checkbox that probably made him proud is going off to like an Oxford, and but you were essentially your advice to your daughter or to your sixteen year old self is like. You know, whether you become a school teacher or a coach or a follow your heart or do what you really want to do is it's interesting because my son right now, there's this whole university path and we're looking at if he did go to the States, some of the big name schools. Do you think it matters? Do you think those, you know, you've done them. You've been to Stanford. You've been to Oxford. I think they matter if they matter for the right reasons. You know, if you ask me what was my best educational experience and probably the toughest by far in a way was my Oxford day. And I went to Stanford afterwards to do my MBA, but Oxford was so special. The, 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 the college system, the tutorial system, the, the way of life. I was studying history. Just letting that seep into you was so important to me. I, I don't mention those, those places that often to people when I talk about it, but they were important. They were so important to me. You know, I think I did it for the right reasons. Now, it obviously looks a lot better, but I think, for instance, my son ended up at University of Oregon because he wanted, it's a feeder school to Nike, and I think that was not 
the best choice. My daughter's at Babson, which is a small liberal arts college focused on business and outside Boston. And that's perfect for her. You know, I would have loved her to be at McGill, but I think she would have been very unhappy at McGill because she wouldn't have gotten into the faculty of management. So she would have been in liberal arts and she was like, well, what do I do in liberal arts? <laughs> I don't know what to do. I mean, the thing that I think is really important there is finishing high school is it's such an important thing to do. You finish it well so that you keep doors open. I mean, I think for people that are 16, 17, 18, it's, I have a nephew who got into Marianopolis and then the day he was supposed to go to Marianopolis said to his father, I'm not going. And, you know, he's 23 now going nowhere. And I'm just sitting there going, oh my God, you just don't want to close those doors. I mean, it's not that he can't bounce back and have a good life afterwards, but it's made so much more difficult. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, that's why we call it the <laughs> We don't know where we're going to end up. Hey, look, that's it, man. We've done a really interesting uh, journey here all around the world and all through a whole bunch of stuff. So thanks a lot. Thanks for sharing your mojo moment. Thank you to uh, Thane for asking me all those questions. Thank you for all of you for listening and, and taping this. And I'm happy that we found a 13th lesson. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit into the cancer thing, but it is, it's a great life lesson. That's awesome, dude. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. So speaking of gratitude, I'm thankful to be back into a season two. Thankful to my mates, Mark, Xavier, and Gisela to keeping this all on track. And thankful to Chris Vellin, who's playing our tunes. And thank you to whoever listens to this and is sharing it to their friends. And obviously a big thank you to Charles for being our guest. Take care and thank you. Everything.